кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте Россия сегодня сейчас. вступает Привет. в силу поправки Это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. Nearly three decades ago, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan agreed to give up the nuclear arsenals that they had inherited from the Soviet Union, turning them over to Russia. In exchange, these newly independent states received vague security assurances from the United States and Great Britain. As part of the agreement, Russia also pledged to respect the signatories' existing borders, independence, and sovereignty, and to refrain from economic coercion against them. Well, we all know how all that turned out. In many quarters, most notably Ukraine, the, the December 1994 Budapest Memorandum has not aged well, to say the least. Given Russia's invasion of Ukraine, many say the memorandum is not worth the paper it's printed on. But what was the thinking and logic of the leaders who brokered and pushed for this highly, highly consequential agreement? And what is its legacy today? Well, stick around because my guest this week is the author of a forthcoming book on the subject and is going to help us break it all down. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. is George Bogdan, an Olin Fellow at the Columbia University School of Law, a visiting researcher at Bard College and the author of a forthcoming book on the Budapest Memorandum based on never-before-released archival files. Welcome to The Vertical, George. Brian, it's a pleasure to be here and a really uh, an honor to be invited on. I'm a big fan of The Vertical, um, and so I'm just happy to be here today. Oh, we're glad to have you on, and I've been wanting to get you on for a while um, after reading your recent article in The National Interest. In, in that article, you wrote the following. You wrote, uh, and I'm quoting, while most in official Washington trumpet their support for Ukraine, never before released archival evidence dating back 30 years proves their forebearers in office share blame for the current crisis. In 1994, American officials browbeat Ukraine's newly independent leaders into giving up the nuclear weapons they had inherited from the Soviet Union, weapons which could have staved off future aggression from Moscow in exchange for nebulous security assurances declared as part of the so-called Budapest Memorandum. These assurances ultimately prove meaningless as Ukraine's plight shows today. We're going to include your article in the show notes for our listeners. And if this is a teaser for your book, I can't wait to read it. Uh, you make a, a strong case that it's high time for the West to face up to its culpability for the suffering in Ukraine now. George, what got you into this topic and what do you hope to show in the book? Right. I mean, first, I'll just say, Brian, that, you know, my my objectives are kind of threefold. And the first one is to restore the kind of historical contingency around this episode to point out that history could have turned out differently. My second objective is to show that this was really considered at the time a political question, not just a moral or a technical question about the preservation of nuclear arms in a new country. Um, and finally, I want to raise kind of how this historical period um, might bear on the present and what it might tell us about interactions with Russia. So, you know, to the specifics of your question about um, how I got into this, you know, I was doing a doctoral dissertation and I was lucky to choose Ukraine as a case study. And uh, I was writing about something called treaty succession, which is the question of whether new countries take on treaties that were signed by their predecessors. So in, mm. in uh, Ukraine's case, uh, the Soviet Union. And basically what I found in the historical record were uh, deeply ambiguous and paradoxical conclusions by very smart people. Mm. And when you have that kind of paper trail, um, I'm a big believer that you've got to put a, a, a note in it and kind of follow up in the future. So uh, as my career progressed, um, I wrote a grant proposal uh, to the Smith Richardson Foundation uh, before the 2022 incursions began. Uh, they awarded it before then. And basically, you know, I started to investigate this further in a, in a, in, with a wider aperture lens and to kind of ask, I think, uh, difficult questions about where uh, the, the kind of nonproliferation uh, treaty and, and its place in Ukraine's foreign relations came from. Uh, and so that's, that's really how I got into this topic. I mean, once the 2022 incursions 
conversions took place and we entered our current kind of situation, there was a lot more interest in this historical period. And so I, uh, you know, spent a lot of time just uh, kind of engaging with people about their reflections, given what, what Russia has done. Right. Yeah. And I was actually in Kiev uh, when the Budapest Memorandum was signed. To put it really mildly, the Ukrainians were pissed. Um, they felt betrayed by the United States. Um, it was pretty overwhelming, actually. I remember conversations I was having in Kiev as this was being signed. Uh, they didn't want to hear arguments about nuclear nonproliferation. They were worried about the Russians. In your book, and we're in the second half, I do want to get into that. You, you kind of say, you know, this didn't have to go the way it, go it went. It could have gone a lot of different ways. I want to explore that in the second half. But in your article, and I'm assuming in the book, uh, you provide readers with a pretty granular history of how the Budapest Memorandum came to be, starting in the dying days of the USSR. I mean, I learned a bit here that this was kind of an issue in the George H.W. Bush administration, and then, of course, bleeding into the Clinton administration. Could you kind of walk us through that? How did this become an issue, and how did it end up getting uh, addressed the way that it had? Of course, Brian, and I think you're absolutely right that this traces back to many kind of mysterious and early moments in the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, I mean, I see this as unfolding in four chapters, right? I mean, there's the pre, what I call the prehistory, um, which is about, you know, before the Soviet Union really, you know, was obviously going to completely deteriorate. And then there's the period under George H.W. Bush's administration, then third, the kind of period under President Clinton's administration. And then there's what I would call the post-history, um, which is what happened after the signing of the Budapest Memorandum. So I, I would love to outline these, but do tell me if I'm going on too long or if something's unclear. Yeah, um, give us the Cliff Notes version of each one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the first period really uh, is, is about exploring the fact that as the Soviet Union began to fall apart, it started to with, retract to kind of secret nuclear arsenals. So, um, you know, the one that stands out in my mind is the one in Hungary, right? So, you know, people say there were the first cracks of the Berlin Wall in Hungary because uh, there was an episode where a bunch of East Germans sort of dashed over the border to Austria, right? But what's happening behind the scenes is that the last communist prime minister of Hungary is actually asked Gorbachev to remove these secret nuclear weapons that he learned about. And Gorbachev says, okay. And basically it seems to me that there was a kind of strategic awareness that things were becoming very unstable and that in order to preserve its influence and dominance, the kind of Russian elites wanted to remove these nuclear weapons, right? So that's how early we're going, right? all okay. the way back to 1989. That's fascinating. Um, uh -huh. I think, you know, also in this period is 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 basically, you know, the attempt by the Soviet Union as it begins to fall apart to assert kind of central control over the hard power of the Soviet Union. So there's the attempt in, you know, what are called the Belaveza Accords, which kind of set up the Commonwealth of Independent States to establish a unified military control. Um, and part of this was was an assertion of control over the nuclear arms. But Kravchuk, uh, the, the first president of Ukraine, was very careful uh, to avoid kind of uh, Immigments or commitments that would uh, lead to Ukraine having less than full independence, right? And so, you know, also in this period is Russia's recognition of Ukraine, right? Because this was a very strange and tenuous moment where uh, Anatoly Sobchuk, the um, kind of mayor of, of St. Petersburg, whose deputy was Vladimir Putin, is one of the right. people sent over to negotiate <laughs> Ukraine's independence. And the man, literally within two months of negotiating this communique, is telling Le Figaro that he thinks that Ukraine. Ukraine's independence is going to lead to a nuclear exchange, right? So very strange period, right? Um, now we get to the George H.W. Bush administration. Uh, President Bush is confronted by the question of how and when to recognize Ukraine's independence. Uh, there's an extremely robust debate within his administration about whether um, acceptance of nonproliferation, acceptance of disarmament, it should be a condition to the United States recognizing Ukraine. Ultimately, it was not, right? So President Bush uh, recognizes Ukraine while urging Ukraine to accept non-proliferation and, and disarmament norms and to get rid of these nukes, but he doesn't force their hand, right, at, at the moment of independence. Now, this then leads to the negotiation of, of, a, of a, an addendum to something called START. Uh, START was the treaty that was going to be the kind of jewel in the crown of, of basically a decade of enormous... Right. Bush was negotiating that with Gorbachev in the dying days of the Soviet Union, the, the, the new START the, the Star treaty at that point, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of the most dense, complicated treaties that, we, that, that exists, right? And it had taken nine to 10 years 
to put this right. together. So Bush is, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we have this chance to change the world by getting rid of nuclear arms. And just by, you know, this historical anomaly that the Soviet Union is, is dissolving, we're not going to be able to do this. So it's actually on the way back from signing start with Gorbachev that he makes the chicken Kiev speech. Right. Right. And this puts a different gloss on the chicken Kiev speech where, you know, he's 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 basically saying be concerned about nationalism, Ukraine. Don't assume that, you know, independence is going to be this glorious thing. Um, but but there's a subtext, right, that this kind of bilateral treaty will have to become multilateral. Right. So so that's eventually, uh, you know, Bush accepts Ukrainian independence and there's an addendum to the START treaty. Right. But what I think is remarkable about this period that is often forgotten is that Bush essentially accepts a seven year timeline through his secretary of state, um, James Baker, for Ukrainian disarmament. The Ukrainians submit a letter to Baker saying we will eventually accept disarmament, but it has to take seven years. Right. Um, in accordance with with other treaty provisions. Now, to Baker, the question was was resolved, right? And there's a marvelous C-SPAN um, uh, kind of uh, snippet that you can see in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in which uh, then Senator Biden is questioning Baker. And Baker is saying, no, if you look at the terms here, it's resolved. Ukraine is going to become a non-nuclear state, right? So we could go on and on about whether that's true or not. But but basically, you know, the American p people intervene and there's a new administration, right? And um, under Clinton, there's a completely different view of the question, right? There's a deep and abiding concern that Ukraine is not actually going to give up its nuclear weapons. Um, there's a concern about the actual uh, sustenance of the NPT itself, the Nuclear uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was set to expire in 1995. And there had to be this vote on whether it would go on. And if the vote did not uh, suggest that it was going to go on, then it would end, right? Uh, and so uh, in order to preserve the NPT, the um, I think Clinton administration felt strongly that they had to achieve a, 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 a more fulsome Ukrainian commitment to nonproliferation and it had to happen faster than seven years, right? Uh, so there, there are other factors at play, but I think, um, you know, this kind of over overriding belief that nonproliferation should be the kind of defining norm of, of American thinking about uh, nuclear policy, that, that, that really came into fruition um, under President Clinton, who uh, led, you know, various negotiations leading to the Budapest Memorandum as we know it today. Uh, the Ukrainians continued to seek a strong security guarantee, which they did not receive in that period. And then remarkably, at the signing of the Budapest Memorandum, uh, we also have um, Yeltsin saying uh, that there was going to emerge a cold peace in Europe. And at the same time that the Budapest Memorandum is being signed, Russia is invading Chechnya, and it is also testing uh, an extremely expensive and uh, basically advanced nuclear delivery system in the background. And so, you know, we have these very strange, deceptive behaviors going on by the Russian state, but uh, there's an acceptance by Clinton's team that there was this blow up at the Budapest conference, but nonetheless, this great achievement had taken place. After this happens, um, the question is really considered resolved and Ukraine fulfills its obligations under these treaties and, and various agreements. You know, I'm going to briefly touch on the post history, which is that of all the countries that were signing the Budapest Memorandum, the country that had the fewest nuclear arms was Belarus. Right. And yet, for some reason, Belarus took the longest to get rid of its nuclear weapons, right? Mm. And this is basically because the same year that the Budapest Memorandum was signed is the year that Lukashenko uh, rises to the presidency. And Lukashenko basically then begins his campaign to assert a kind of uh, union with, with Russia. There's a, a kind of deep, ambiguous set of agreements and all of this talk of military engagement uh, with, with Russia. And basically, he also says openly that we should not remove nuclear arms uh, from Belarusian territory. And he insists on this kind of psycho drama uh, with other various Russian actors until uh, I would say there's a, a commitment by NATO that any new uh, NATO member states will not have nuclear arms on their territory. This is this is there's actually a link between this that Javier Solana says in public in response to Belarus um, claiming it was going to keep its nuclear arms. Well, we're not going to have you know new nuclear states within NATO. So this is a very complicated period, but but within it you see a, a deeply political story and that's what i've been trying to kind of get across yeah and i want to dive into like kind of a stated 
Western motivations and the um, and the actual motivations, because I think you really fleshed this out in your article really well. But I wanted to um, kind of remark remark on a quote that you uh, that you 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 had in your article from Edward Shepard Nazi, who was the last uh, Soviet foreign minister, of course, later would become the president of Georgia, of course, a, a Georgian. Uh, and Shepard Nazi says the following, the Americans do not know our terrible rough relations with the Russian Empire and the USSR. Without that knowledge, building predictable and trustworthy relations with democratic Yeltsin in Russia would be very difficult whom the Americans currently call Russian Democrats. I know many of them, talk to them a lot. They are still sick with imperial infection. So Shepard Nazi seems to be speaking to American naivete here, um, saying the Americans just don't really get it. They're still dealing with imperial Russia, but they think they're dealing with democratic Russia. Does, does, that, does your research bear that out? And, and can you kind of uh, expand on that a bit? Yes, I mean, I think that uh, we're very lucky to have the record from that meeting between uh, Shevardnadze and, and Kravchuk, the first president of Ukraine, because I think it demonstrates the kind of commiseration of two leaders who are going to be on the periphery of an independent Russian federation and their recognition of kind of plus a change. You know, right. that basically, yes, there's been this collapse of the Soviet Union, but really what's devastating to them is that the new uh, kind of the so-called new Russian elites have persuaded the Americans um, that they have a different view of the world. And sadly, I don't think that was really the case. Uh, I think that basically there was a desire to reassert dominance in Central and Eastern Europe um, and that the question of nuclear weapons was a huge part of that um, calculus on the part of uh, various kind of uh, figures. And, and I would say that it might be at the time a kind of strategic intuition by Russia uh, rather than a kind of conspiracy or a fully fleshed out long-term strategy, but nonetheless, Shevardnadze is saying, look, I was part of the Politburo. I have looked at these documents. These documents have not changed. There hasn't been time to change them. They're still on file, you know. So he's trying to get across to, to Kravchuk that he should not simply relent. And so this goes to the heart of my argument that even if Ukraine didn't become a nuclear state, more should have been done um, immediately to preserve its long-term security. And so that's that's part of what I'm, you know, investigating. Yeah, and Shevardnadze also made the remark, which I, I, which stuck with me, that if Ukraine just was allowed to keep one nuclear warhead, it would have prevented uh, future Russian aggression. Now, uh, one of the points you make that um, that I really like is that the the stated goal of the United States and the Western powers in the Budapest Memorandum, well, they're twofold basically. One was non-proliferation, of course. That was what the, that this is what the what what the Clinton administration and the Bush administration before it um, were 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 concerned with, or were saying they were concerned with. And they were there's also this notion that Ukraine just was not capable of maintaining a nuclear arsenal. They just I don't know what the suggestion was here. They they just weren't smart enough. I don't know or weren't technologically savvy enough. Um, but yet you said there were real. Uh, there were real reasons. The real reasons behind this was the uh, the desire on the part of the West, um, not exclusively the United States, but the United States as well, to to kind of assuage Russia's concerns at all costs, to appease Russia at all costs, to keep these Democrats in Russia in power at all costs. Can you kind of unpack that a bit? Because I found that really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that the declared reasons, you hit them right on the head, right? That basically um, there was a sense um, among the kind of leadership at the State Department, at the Department of Defense, um, that nonproliferation had to be kind of the central guiding principle of American uh, nuclear policy after the Cold War. Um, this was considered to be a deeply progressive, important move away from kind of arms control as we previously understood it, which is, um, I would say, under Schelling's interpretation, that the objective is to create more stability. Um, and that actually reducing nuclear arms can be quite dangerous if it if it induces more instability, right? That's a tangent that we could go on, but right. I want to really flesh out the, the second point that you mentioned, right? That there's been, I would say, a cacophony of canards over the last 30 years, okay? And this, what I mean by that is that basically there's been an attempt to argue that the point is moot, Ukraine never could have afforded this arsenal. It never could have gotten, you know, a serious uh, set of weapons ready for use. Um, and I and I think that, you know, rather than engaging with the 
enormous battery of kind of technical claims that are out there. You know, I am I'm happy to point to authors like Mariana Bujarin, who's written a, a beautiful, important book on the subject. She and I disagree on many things, but she points out that there was a nuclear option. Right. And so once you have the reality that Ukraine could have had something of an arsenal, you can't then say, well, it doesn't matter whether this was a political question or not, because they couldn't have got there. Right. There was a path to something of a nuclear arsenal. So so I kind of cabin that that kind of whole debate. Um, I also really am concerned about the suggestion of it not being economically viable. Right. Because if you look at the cost of Ukraine's um, domination by Russia over three decades and then the trillion dollars of damage done just by the 2022 wars, it, it strikes me as rather condescending to suggest that it wouldn't have been a good investment on Ukraine's part to ensure that it had deterrence in some capacity, right? So so I, I leave those aside and I and I worry about their viability in the future. To get to your 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 point about you know the real reasons, I mean there's a there's a kind of series of papers being published by the Brookings Institution now about the Ukraine war called the Talbot Papers. And what's ironic about that title is that actually Ambassador Talbot's papers are now available. And in those papers, we see, I would say, a, a deeply troubling uh, willingness to describe Ukraine's disarmament as part of uh, a series of concessions to bring the United States and Russia into a closer working relationship, right? And so you see in the back channeling with people like Mamadev um, that if the United States accedes to and, and pushes Ukraine on this faster path to clear disarmament, there's going to be... Uh, better relations and they're going to see eye to eye on things, right? And and he, uh, Talbot actually goes so far as to say to um, you know, the a Polish foreign minister, oh, we don't believe in a, in a Russian year abroad. And then six days later, um, to the Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, he says, look, there's this near abroad and there's not much we can do about it. And we want to show that we accept that by uh, allowing, you know, the process of Ukrainian disarmament to move forward and in fact, hastening it. So, so that I think has to be part of the story. And it's a yeah. tragic part of the story. And, and I feel a great deal of empathy for the people making decisions in real time then. But, but we need to acknowledge that. Yeah, there was. It's almost like there was a tacit acknowledgement of a Russian sphere of influence in the former Soviet space. Something Putin's been pushing for, and the United States has, has consistently said it opposes. But yet, there you have it in, uh, in 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 Talbot and Christopher's own words. Almost a tacit recognition that Russia has hegemony over this space. And this is something I do want to dive into this in the second half, because I think this was part and parcel of a much larger pattern. Um, and it's getting into my own my own work right now. My the, the book I'm working on right now, Russian Illusions, Lessons from the Post-Cold War. One of the lessons is that we prioritized our uh, relations with Russia over those of the of the other newly independent states, um, which led to a lot of um, of bad outcomes. You also write about how Ukraine was lobbying. They understood that they weren't getting security guarantees. Uh, they're not fools, right? They understand these security assurances were not guarantees. But the Ukrainians were at the time were pushing for real security guarantees from 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 the West and from NATO. Um, and they were rebuffed in some quarters and, and referred to as the whiners in Kiev. Uh, the whiners in Kiev. Can you unpack that a little bit? Right. I think that um, there's basically a a, a series of of conclusions that were very important to recognize at that period by by the United States and its kind of leaders. Those were, first of all, that Russia was not going to be a belligerent power, that it was not in the future going to behave as the USSR did, you know, that, that basically history had ended in Russia and that they had accepted a kind of um, Western model of, of statecraft and diplomacy. Obviously, that, that's not been borne out. Um, but also there was a kind of uh, belief that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians could sign this assumption of risk uh, because there was no risk, uh, and and that's reflected in the assurances. And so, you know, those kinds of conclusions that that all of this is just froth. That uh, there's an attempt by the Ukrainians to get more out of us because uh, they want, you know, uh, concessions and they want uh, economic aid and they want, you know, a, a, an ironclad agreement that we're just not going to give them. That this is all kind of false leverage, and and we shouldn't be, uh, you know, falling prey to 
pray to this, right? Um, there, there are very concerning statements about Ukraine um, resembling the Balkans, which which I think were, um, that was part of the kind of lumping this the broader region together. Uh, that, that is, those are very concerning as well. Um, but you know, to kind of get to the to the point about Ukrainian attempts to to have security guarantees, I mean, constantly throughout this process, it haunts the researcher. You know, under Bush forty one, there's the request uh, through the negotiations of the Lisbon Protocol, this addendum to start. Uh, we want something like Article five from NATO, um, maybe not NATO membership, but something like that. Under Clinton, uh, there's the attempt as well. You know, Kravchuk raises this from the moment that Clinton. Uh, calls him you know so so this is a feature of the conversation and and the resistance by the united states i think indicates um how those kind of assumptions about russia's intentions in the future as well as the imperative felt to have strong relations with russia fit together right so it's all it's all there yeah no and it's it's remarkable that when you look back at all of this it, with hindsight because you know the initial in- interventions in Georgia did not take place under Putin they took place in the Yeltsin period in Abkhazia and South Ossetia um, the intervention in Moldova and Transnistria took place very early I mean a lot of these were Soviet holdovers but Yeltsin, the Yeltsin administration was continuing them and as far as Ukraine goes post Budapest memorandum I mean uh, you know if I read the agreement correctly um Russia pledged not to use economic coercion against Ukraine they were using economic coer- they never stopped using economic coercion from the very very beginning they were violating this agreement from the start was there ever a sense in the west Russia's not 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 keeping up its end of this bar- its, its end of the bargain or was it kind of just seen as done and dusted problem solved and looked the other way what 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 did you see here were there voices in the foreign policy establishment were there that were that were kind of raising red flags about this well i think that one of the most important discoveries that i've made uh, is one of the one of the ones that's still shrouded somewhat in mystery and that is that actually within bush 41's government um, there was a robust debate and we know from uh, uh marvelous memoirs that Secretary Cheney, then Secretary Cheney, Dick Cheney, was saying, no, we should not have these nuclear weapons removed from the periphery of the Soviet Union. Um, and and although his papers remain largely, um, uh, you know, redacted and, and not released, uh, there were people in the national security at, you know, staff at the time that were basically fleshing these arguments out and explaining why they were wrong, right? Because that's what the, that was the conclusion that Bush ultimately came to, President Bush came to. I mean, I, I think that, you know, that's a, a very important part of the story. But, uh, you know, under President Clinton's administration, I did not see uh, anyone really saying that there was a viable path for Ukraine to have something like uh, a nuclear arsenal. And I think um, Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer's claim that no one in the U.S. government uh, thought that that was. A, a potential path or acceptable is true. Uh, we have the remarkable sign on the desk of one of the leaders in the office of the independent states in the State Department that said it's the nukes stupid. Um, I mean, that was literally how important they felt the topic was. So, so you know, I think that there was then a kind of lapse and lull in, in which, you know, Russia became truly a, a kind of weak uh, peripheral um, actor in some ways to, to larger global questions. Um, and so these incursions that, that you and I think demonstrate a very clear pattern of behavior were kind of pushed aside um, as being, oh, you know, there, there goes Russia again, but this isn't so important, so we don't have to pay attention to it. You know, but it, but it is a, a curious question that there was by no means at the moment of conception, you know, very clear consensus on the question. It was, it was, it was you know, there were many people who said, why on earth are we going to trust uh, that this new thing, the Russian Federation, is going to behave differently than, than the USSR? Yeah, no, and it was remarkable. I mean, being in that part of the world at that time and the, the I mean, the big eye opener for me, because I had spent most of my formative time in Russia. But once I got to the non-Russian republics and spent some time there, it was really an eye-opener because you saw the – you began to see the issue very, very differently. And like I said, the reactions to the Budapest Memorandum in Kiev um, were, were – I was taken aback by and They forced me to kind of rethink a lot of, a, a lot of my own assumptions at the, at, at, at the time. You place a lot of emphasis on the fact of, of Clinton's election in 92. Do you think this would – I know it's hypothetical and you can't answer it, but like do you think it would have played out differently had Bush been reelected? 
I think that there would have continued to be a deep uh, nagging suspicion of uh, the the decision to basically, with open arms, uh, accept Russia uh, on its on the terms that it that it, it right. preferred, right? And so, uh, an important uh, historical argument that I'm making is that in order to preserve START, Russia stated as a prerequisite that it would have to have basically nuclear parity with the United States. So. Outside of the Russian Federation, 25 to 30 percent of the nuclear arms of the Soviet Union existed. Right. So from the moment there's this talk of how do we keep start, Russia makes very clear, well, we're going to count those as the ones that we're giving up. We're not going to you know, count those as independent caches in which uh -huh. you then have to, you know, so, so that's an interesting question because cl clearly Baker turns this over in his mind and he immediately responds to the Russian representative, could this lead to a war with you? Ukraine and and then the Russian representative said what kind of war there's you know he says something like there's so much you know Russian Ukrainian mar intermarriage what do you mean a war and Baker says a normal war so right. so these are the kinds of things that I think even Baker recognized were were on the table in the future that that we couldn't just abandon uh, the strategic outlook um, that we had had during the Cold War at least not so quickly so I, I it's a it's a very hard question because clearly President Bush committed himself to seeing a non-nuclear Ukraine but while Kravchuk was making his first visit to Washington Bush saw you know Russia basically try to seize you uh, Crimea through political means to have right. the Crimean parliament announce uh, its own independence. And this, I think, shocked Bush. We have very clear evidence. He was like, you know, they're doing this when I'm having Kravchuk over to the White House. What is going on? Well, you know, no accident so, there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so this is, I think, what would have potentially led to a different outcome. Yeah. Right. No. So when you look back at all this, what do you who who uh, the, the eternal Russian question, Kovinovod, who's guilty? What's the uh, was this a product of American naivete? Was it a product of our desire to appease Russia at all costs to, you know, uh, to, to keep the quote unquote new Democrats um, in our good graces? What, what do you what do you what do you attribute? Or is it, a, of course, a mixture of all of the above? But where do you see most of the blame? Right. I mean, so I really do see the United States as the primary and uh, kind of protagonist in the story, right? And and I and I say this um, with with some sadness, but also with some recognition that there was only so much pressure that Russia could have put on Ukraine. And after it recognized Ukrainian independence, um, you know, it wasn't in a position to like mobilize an army in the way that it could today. Um, and so as much of the insecurity that plagued, um, you know, Ukraine at the time, I think that Russia was was so weak in this in this moment that the United States has a lot to, to answer for in terms of orchestrating these agreements. Um, I, you know, I would also say that um, part of um, if there is culpability on the United States' half, it's it's culpability born from um, kind of credulity, if you will, because mm -hmm. um, the United States wanted to believe that the that the sort of so-called Russian Democrats viewed the world differently, but it also was willing to be led by their claims about what their grievances were. You know, the, the entire debate about the post-Cold War order has been dominated in Europe over the question of NATO expansion. Yes. And so far as I can tell, this actually comes from the repeated Russian statement, this is bothering us, this is a big deal, you are undermining our security. And it fits with the kind of uh, transatlantic view that this multilateral institution that has this Article 5 frontier from the Washington Treaty, this is the most important thing that we should really be caring about. Right. But what what if that was misdirection? And what if the true, you know, Russian strategic uh, decision making was driven by the placement of nuclear arms and forces, right? That is happening simultaneously. And yet, you know, the most of the debate at the time and, and the debate heaven's sakes afterwards has been well well what was happening with nato expansion what was happening with with nuclear arms and how did we get to the point where russia can effectively tragically assert uh, kind of a kind of blackmail over or over Western attempts to send any kind of weapons to Ukraine. You know, that is a really interesting story that I right. think needs to be drawn out from the historical record. And it's it's difficult. Yeah, no, and we forget NATO enlargement, that discussions of NATO enlargement were happening around this same time. The Russians were pushing a lot of mythology at that point. The so-called promise the Secretary Baker allegedly made to Shevardnadze that never happened. Um, we, we, we now know this. But yeah, that was 
was dominating at the time. So yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything you want to add, George, before I move into the second half? I want to broaden the aperture a little bit in the second part of the program. You know, I, I'm happy to respond to you, Brian. And, and you know, there's right. so much to this story that I get going yeah. and I, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and broaden the aperture to look at how the Budapest Memorandum was just one example of how the West prioritized its relations with Moscow over the other former Soviet republics and inadvertently enabled Russian imperialism. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. is George Bogdan, an Owen fellow at the Columbia University School of Law, a visiting researcher at Bard College, and author of a forthcoming book Book on the Budapest Memorandum based on never-before-released archival files. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and you can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and keep an eye out for a new Power Vertical sub Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности. Гоним вас. С новым веком. So when the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, it not only inherited the nuclear arsenals of Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, it also got the Soviet Union's seat on the UN Security Council with scant discussion of any alternatives. The West's motivation in acquiescing to Russia becoming the legal successor to the USSR are indeed complex, with a desire for Moscow to assume responsibility for Soviet-era debts to international lenders looming very, very large. But it was also the result of a tendency in the West to prioritize relations with Moscow over its former vassal and satellite states. Case in point. When NATO invited Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary to join the alliance in 1997, U.S. President Bill Clinton felt the need to hold a special summit with Boris Yeltsin in Helsinki to win his approval. George, do you see the Budapest Memorandum as part of a broader pattern? And how much evidence have you uncovered in your research to support this Moscow-centric mindset kind of bleeding into other policy areas? Right. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there that that's part of the story that that is just really um, a liet motif, right? I, that many in the United States were uh, educated in a in a way that glorified the concept of a greater Russia and that uh, Russia would always be the decision maker in the region and that it, it, it actually, you know, had a, a seat at the table regardless of what happened. And so actually one of the more, you know, interesting communiques that I've read is between, or not communiques, but but cables that I've read is is between um, the United States' last ambassador to the Soviet Union, uh, Jack Matlock, and, uh, you know, the, the State Department's kind of seventh floor. And what he says in that, in that, cable is, look, we we got to take seriously that the Soviet Union is going to fall apart. And one of the uh, issues that he raises is that you could have this truncated, belligerent, nuclear-armed uh, Russian state. And and then he says, or you could have this civil war among, you know, these different entities, right? And so very clearly the disaster planning that is undertaken, we actually have these documents now, focuses solely on the second issue, right? And so I asked Matlock in conversation, you know, why is it that that they proceeded to consider it much more threatening for these, you know, independent entities to have a belligerent relationship with Russia than for Russia to have a belligerent relationship with the world and to use its nuclear status? And basically he said, you know, uh, Russia was always going to be the nuclear power coming out of this, and we didn't see it any other way. Now, now I think that he uh, may not 
realize there were others thinking differently at the time, but it, it cast a light on on his uh, view that basically, you know, there was going to be something like the Soviet Union after the collapse of the Soviet Union, even if it was by a different name, right? And that's a very disturbing um, uh, tendency or, or assumption or um, heuristic, however you want to describe it. Um, now, the first, uh, you know, U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation didn't have this. Um, ambassador Strauss wrote back to uh, the U.S. about threats that that Yeltsin actually admitted to in public that he had described, you know, the possibility to military planners of a a unilateral nuclear strike on on Kiev. I mean, he was he was much more, I think, balanced in his view that that Russia had to be treated with it with a degree of um, skepticism. Right, right, and I've, I mean, this this kind of tracks with like conversations I've had with 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 a lot of uh, former senior U.S. diplomats who were active at the time that where everybody was socialized um, to, to look at Moscow as the main show, of course. If you were a U.S. diplomat working on the Soviet desk at the State Department, you dealt with Moscow. You fairly ventured beyond Moscow if you were if you if you were serving as a foreign service officer in the Soviet Union. So everything was kind of Moscow centric. And over time, we began to see this generational change as American diplomats were stationed in Kiev and Tbilisi and Yerevan and Baku and elsewhere. And you began to see this change. But in this early period, everybody was socialized in this Moscow centric view of things. So it's perhaps not surprising that they approached it that way. Moreover, as you pointed out earlier, George, and we did a podcast several months back on this, on the the battle over history and how many Americans of that generation were educated in this Russian imperial version of history, which has kind of since been kind of discredited. I don't know if you you, you caught that episode with Jeff Mankoff and Marta Dichok, two excellent yep, historians yep, yep. are on the show. So it, it's it's not surprising at all that this would be the case. Did you see any pushback in that time about this? I mean, I keep, I harp a lot on the UN Security Council seat. Like, why did Russia get that seat? Now, at the time, it seemed axiomatic. Of course, they're going to get the seat, right? There was, of course, the issue of Soviet-era debt that the Western countries, not at least of which the United States wanted, cleared up. But did you see any pushback? Right. I mean, just to, to, to add my own gloss to that initial observation you make, I mean, th- for me, this goes back all the way to, you know, the Enlightenment and pre-Enlightenment, where you have people like Voltaire saying we have to prefer, you know, the Russian autocrat to the wishes and whims of these silly little kingdoms that happen to lie between us and Russia, right? I mean, this is a deeply embedded Western view as much as it is a, a, a Russian view, t- in my opinion. I mean, I do think that the pushback where it occurred uh, was from the diaspora in the United States. You know, the, the the expansion of NATO, I think, was provoked by various diasporas um, saying, you know, it's very important that the United States seize this moment of, of, of Soviet collapse to achieve independence, long-lasting and free for these peoples who had been dominated, right? And so books like Not Whether But When, you know, articulate how uh, this, these kind of diaspora movements uh, enabled that. But more importantly, you know, Ukraine actually undermined mind that UN seat that you're talking about going to Russia, because in the Lisbon Protocol, Ukraine carefully negotiated the language that it too was a legal successor of the Soviet Union. Okay. Uh-huh. And people don't want to talk about this now, right? They say, oh, right. that was a mistake. And Russia, I think, actually, after the fact, realized the magnitude of, of that uh, assertion in the Lisbon Protocol because it essentially established um, the beginnings of recognition that were, of course, later contradicted that, that Ukraine was going to be one of the successors. It's the, it's the largest after Russia of all of the kind of constituents of the Soviet Union. So that pushback was real. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Americans who were familiar with the region were writing about, you know, why are we talking about the toxicity of Ukrainian nationalism? Right. You know, is Russian nationalism healthy and pure? You know, I mean, th- so they were making those kinds of arguments. If you look closely at the historical record, but they just weren't being heard. So, so it was a, a kind of mix. It was a, you know, there's that dominant narrative, but also many different groups eating away at it even then. Right. I want to I ask you to respond to a really unfair thing, but I'm sure it's been on your mind. Um, it can't not be on your mind having 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 being right writing a book uh, uh, such as this. Can you imagine an alternative world 
where there was no Budapest memorandum, where Ukraine didn't give up its nuclear weapons, um, where perhaps Ukraine was one of the successors to the Soviet Union. Um, perhaps Ukraine got that seat on the Security Council. Is this science fiction, or can you imagine that one? Well, I think that uh, it's very dangerous to, you know, strongly assert counterfactual history taking place because there are so many um, interceding variables, mm -hmm. right? Of course. But I think that essentially it depends on the degree to which you think Russia becoming upset, at, you know, the Russian government becoming upset and lashing out um, would would have destabilized the world and, and made things go to pieces, right? Um, and so if, if you're like me and you tend to view that period of one uh, in which, you know, Russia was basically prostrate in, in international terms, but also had deep domestic problems that were fomenting insecurity within, that, you know, there could have been more done to uh, truly dis disable long-term uh, Russian revanchism, right? And what form that might have taken, whether it be uh, an additional seat on the UN Security Council for one of the, you know, former Soviet republics, or whether it would have been, you know, a, a kind of unwillingness to remove, you know, American nuclear arms from from uh, many, you know, kind of NATO partner states, which which also occurred in the 1990s. Um, that, I think, uh, is present in my mind. Now, you know, I, I think it's it's hard uh, to say that, you know, Ukraine would have, you know, had a different fate had it had nuclear arms. But that gets into what I think is a deep blind spot in, in strategic thinking, right, about nuclear weapons, which is that there's this assumption that uh, you have to have a really strong arsenal in order to have a deterrent, whereas Libya basically announces it's pursuing nuclear arms and the world goes crazy. I mean, there was a huge reaction to this right. and there was all this concern about power, how things are going to change in North Africa, the Mediterranean. So clearly, people don't actually believe you have to have a perfect arsenal with enough to survive a first strike. Like, clearly, people don't believe that. So um, that uh, that kind of valence of once you have something of an arsenal, how much deterrence do you get for it? That is a very difficult question. And it, it right. goes back to the Shevard Nadze comment, right? Because so far as we can tell, the Russians believe the United States was willing to use nuclear arms during the Cold War and that this was a kind of showstopper for engaging in anything that would trigger that. Right. So if it was projected in that regard towards a Ukraine that had a small sunsetting nuclear arsenal, maybe Russia wouldn't have behaved as it did. And, and maybe it wouldn't have used energy to just ruin Ukraine's economy and harm, you know, its its domestic prospects. These are complicated questions that we'll, ne we'll never know the answer to. Right. Yeah. No, and the, the subtext of a lot of this is one of my biggest lessons from the post-Cold War period is that we we assumed the problem is communism. When communism was gone, problem solved, when really the problem was Russian imperialism, right? Really the problem was Russian imperialism. If you were, and we're bumping up against the end, so I'm going to kind of leave you with a last question here. What are the main lessons for policymakers today to draw from the Budapest Memorandum? Well, I think they're multifold. You know, I want to underscore that you've highlighted for me the most important one that I think was initially articulated by George Kennan in his long cable, right? Which is to say, the problem is Russian nationalism. It's not the mask of communism that's being worn, right? Right. And so that's a theme that is drawn through the Cold War and its end that is hugely important. Now, I, I would say that uh, with regard to, you know, a regional lesson that's been learned, um, it's that, you know, Russia has a kind kind of inbuilt um, uh, urge, a, a kind of uh, intuition, a kind of desire to dominate other regions. I think this emanates from the fact that it's a plurality of ethnic groups and that it's always going to be a minority governing other minorities. And so where does the frontier of you know your country end if you're the largest country on earth and there are lots of minorities at your border? I mean, that's a that's a not a, a, a very stable way of viewing, you know, what territory is yours or not. Now, now on the on the most theoretical level, I think we have to uh, suffer some moral insomnia 
about the question of of nuclear nonproliferation. You know, I grew up um, during the the period of of the Iraq invasion, and I and I recognized that there was a great deal of emphasis placed on the on the believed uh, nuclear arsenal that Saddam Hussein was developing. Uh, obviously, that that wasn't the case. Right. But, but in the 1990s, was born the idea that that uh, you know nonproliferation was a, an important objective to the extent that you could go to war over it. Right. And so the pressure overwhelming and, um, you know, devastating put on Ukraine to get rid of these nuclear arms, um, I think coincided with a with a, a messianic uh, almost understanding of the need to have only five nuclear powers and that those five nuclear powers by their nature were going to be responsible, right? That's just not what's happening in the world right now. And so we should carefully calibrate um, the desire to avoid the, you know, multiplicity of, of nuclear powers unfolding uh, with the recognition that if you limit them too much to too few actors, those actors then can do bad things. And that's, that's I mean, that's going to take many decades of careful reevaluation of previous deterrence theory. I mean, it's going to take a long time to percolate into, I think, American foreign policy. Right. No, that's a good way to wrap it up. And I guess, I mean, does anybody really believe that Ukraine would have been a less responsible custodian of a nuclear arsenal than Russia, right? I think the answer to that is fairly obvious. Um, on that note, we will wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. has been George Bogdan, an Olin Fellow at the Columbia University School of Law, a visiting researcher at Bard College, and author of a forthcoming book on the Budapest Memorandum based on never-before-released archival files. George, thank you for an enlightening discussion and for making me and our listeners a whole lot smarter. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Jareer Rahman is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Jarir also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat, five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical and keep an eye out for our new Substack, which is coming soon. Join us again next week when we will introduce an exciting new product being released by me and my colleagues at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 